Chapter One of The Girl Who Had Nothing. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Allison. The Girl Who Had Nothing by Mrs. C. N. Williamson. Chapter One The Old Lady in the Victoria. Joan Carthew had reason to believe that it was her birthday and she had signalized the occasion by running away from home. But her birthday, and her home, and her running away, were all so different from things with the same name in the lives of other children, that the celebration was not in reality as festive as it might seem if put into print. In the first place, she based her theory as to the date solely upon a dim recollection that once, eons of years ago, when she had been a petted little creature with belongings of her own, she was now twelve. There had been presents and sweets on the 13th of May. She thought she could recall looking forward eagerly to that anniversary, and she argued shrewdly that as her assortment of agreeable memories was small, in all likelihood she had not made a mistake. In the second place, Joan's home was a Brighton lodging-house, where she was a guest of the landlady, and not a paying guest, as she was frequently reminded. In that vague time, eons ago, she had been left at the house by her mother, who was, it seemed, an actress, with a sum of money large enough to pay for her keep until that lady's return from touring at the end of the theatrical season. The end of the season and the end of the money had come about the same time, but not the expected mother. The beautiful Mrs. Carthew, whose professional name was Marie Lancaster, had never reappeared, never written, Mrs. Boyle had made inquiries, advertised, and spent many shillings on theatrical papers, but had been able to learn nothing. Mr. Carthew was a vague shadow with a mysterious background, less substantial even than a walking gentleman, and Mrs. Boyle, feeling herself a much injured woman, had in her first passion of resentment boxed Joan's ears and threatened to send the brat to the poorhouse. But the child was in her seventh year and beginning to be useful. She liked running up and down stairs to answer the lodger's bells, which saved steps for the two overworked servants, and of course when she became a financial burden instead of the means of lightening burdens, it was discovered that she could do many other things with equal ease and propriety. She could clean boots and knives, wash dishes, help make beds, and carry trays. She could also be slapped for misdeeds of her own and those of others, an act which afforded invariable relief to the landlady's feelings. As years went on, further spheres of usefulness opened, especially after the Boyle baby came. One servant could be kept instead of two, and taking everything into consideration, Joan's hostess decided to continue her charity. Therefore, the child could have answered the conundrum, When is a home not a home? out of the stores of her intimate experience. In the third place, she had only run away as far as one of the shelters on the Marine Parade. She had brought the landlady's baby with her, and lurking grimly in the recesses of her mind, she had the virtuous intention of going home again when Minnie should be hungry enough to cry at tea-time. Joan was telling the two-year-old Minnie a fairy story, made up out of her own head, all about a gorgeous princess, and founded on the adventures she herself would best like to have when just as the narrative was working toward an exciting climax, a girl of Joan's own age came in sight, walking with her governess. 
The story broke off short between Joan's little white teeth, which suddenly shut together with a click. This did not signify much, as far as the boil baby was concerned, for Joan unconsciously wove fairy tales more for her own pleasure than that of her companion, and as a matter of fact the warmth of the afternoon sunshine, as juice of poppy and mandragora on Minnie's brain, her small primrose-yellow head was nodding, and she was unaware that the story had ended abruptly, just as the princess was beguiling the dragon, and that a girl almost as fine as the princess herself was approaching. The newcomer was about twelve or thirteen, and she was more exquisitely dressed than any child Joan remembered to have met. Perhaps, if the apparition had been a good deal younger or older, the lodging-house drudge would not have observed so keenly, or realized with a quick stab of passionate pain the illimitable gulf dividing lives. But here was a girl of her own age, her own height, her own needs and capacities, and yet the difference. It struck her like a thrust of some thin, delicate surgical instrument, which could inflict anguish, yet leave no trace. Joan's whole life was spent in dreaming. Without the dreams, existence at twelve seam-formed terrace would not have been tolerable to a young creature with the nerves of a racehorse and the imagination of a Scheherazade. She lived practically a double life within herself, but never until this moment had she been consciously jealous of the happier fate of a fellow-creature. In looking from the shelter where she sat in shadow at the other girl who walked in sunshine, she knew the crunching pain of the monster's fangs. The other girl had long, fair hair. She wore white muslin foaming with lace frills, white stockings, and shoes of white suede. Her face was shaded by a great rose-crowned leghorn hat, which flopped into soft curves and made a picture of small features, which without it might have seemed insignificant. The magnetism that was in Joan Carthew's eyes forced the girl to turn and throw a glance as she passed at the shabby child in faded brown serge, a frock altered from a discarded one of Mrs. Boyle's, who sat huddled in the shelter, with a tawdrily dressed baby asleep by her side. The glance had all the primitive, merciless disdain of a sleek, fortunate young animal, or a miserable, hunted one, and Joan felt the meaning of it in her soul. "'Why should she have everything, and I nothing?' was the old new question which shaped itself wordlessly in the child's brain. "'She looks at me as if I were a rat. I'm not a rat. I'm as good as she is. If I had her clothes. I'm cleverer. "'Prettier, too. I know I am. Heaps and heaps. "'Oh, I want to be like her. Only better. I must be. I shall.' "'She quivered with the fierceness of her revolt against fate. "'Yet in it was no vulgar jealousy. "'The other girl's pale blue eyes and one contemptuous glance "'had found every patch on her frock and shoes, "'had criticized her old hat, "'and sneered at her little rough work-worn hands.' "'scorning her for them as if she were a creature of an inferior race. "'But Joan had no personal hatred for the happier child, "'no wish for revenge, no desire to take from the other what she had. "'The feeling which shook her with sudden stormy passion "'was merely the sharp realization of injustice, "'the conviction that by nature she herself was worthy of the good things she had missed, "'the savage resolve to have what she ought to have at any cost.' It was not tea-time yet, and Minnie was happily asleep. 
Joan was certain to be scolded just as sharply on her return as if she had stopped away for hours longer. Therefore she might as well have drained her birthday cup of stolen pleasure to the dregs. But the good taste of the draught was gone. She yearned only to go home, to get the scolding over, and to have a few minutes to herself in the tiny back room which she shared with the baby. There seemed to be much to think of, much to decide. The child waked Minnie, who was cross at being roused, and refused to walk. The quickest way of triumphing over the difficulty was to carry her, and this method Joan promptly adopted. But the baby was heavy and fractious. She wriggled in her young nurse's grasp, and just as Joan had staggered round the corner of Seafoam Terrace with her disproportionate burden, she tripped and fell under the windows of number 12. Minnie roared, and there was an echoing shriek from the house. Mrs. Boyle, who had been looking up and down the street in angry quest of her missing drudge, saw the catastrophe and rushed to the rescue of her offspring. She snatched the baby, who was more frightened than hurt, and holding her by one arm proceeded to administer chastisement to Joan. Instinctively she knew that the girl was sensitive and proud, though she had no kindred feelings in her own soul, and she delighted in humiliating her drudge before the whole street. As she screamed reproaches and harsh names, raining a shower of blows on Joan's ears and head and burning cheeks, a face appeared in at least one window of each house along the terrace. Though a cataract of sparks cascaded before the child's eyes, somehow she saw the faces and imagined a dozen for every one. The shame seemed to her beyond bearing. She forgot even her love for the baby, which, with the dreams, was the bright thread in the dull fabric of her existence. After this martyrdom, she neither could nor would live on in Seafoam Terrace, which with all its eyes had seen her beaten like a dog. "'Into the house with you, you lazy, good-for-nothing brat!' panted Mrs. Boyle, when her hand was tired of smiting, and with a push she would have urged the girl toward the open front door. But Joan turned suddenly and faced her. "'No!' she cried. "'I won't be your servant any more. I've done with you. I'll never go into your hateful house again. Until I come back as a grand lady you will have to bow down to and worship.' These were grandiloquent words, and Mrs. Boyle would either have laughed with a coarse sneer, or struck Joan again for her impudence, had not the look in the child's great eyes actually cowed her for the moment. In that moment the thin girl of twelve, whom she had beaten, seemed to grow very tall and wonderfully beautiful, and in the next she had gone like a whirlwind, which comes and passes before it's been realized. Joan was desperate. Her newly formed ambition and her stinging shame mounted like frothing wine to her hot brain. She was in a mood to kill herself, or make her fortune. For a time she flew on blindly, neither knowing nor caring which way she went. By and by, as breath and strength failed, she ran more slowly, then settled into a quick, unsteady walk. She was on the front, running in the direction of Hove, and in the distance a handsome Victoria with two horses was coming. The sun shone on the silver harness and the horses' satin backs. There was a coachman and a groom in, in livery, and in the carriage sat an old lady, dressed in grey silk, of the same soft tint as her hair. Joan had seen this old lady in her Victoria several times before, and had pretended to herself, in one of her glittering dreams, that the lady took a fancy to her and proposed adoption. 
Now, in a flash of thought, which came quick as the glint of light on a bird's wing, the child told herself that this thing must happen. She had no home, no people, nothing. She would stake her life on the one throw which might win all or lose all. Without stopping to be afraid, or to argue whether she were brave or foolhardy, she ran forward and threw herself in front of the horses. The coachman pulled them up so sharply that the splendid pair plunged, almost falling back onto the Victoria, but he was not quick enough to save the child one blow on the shoulder from an iron-shod hoof. In an instant the groom was in the road, and had snatched her up, with a few gruff words which Joan dimly heard and understood although she had just enough consciousness left to feign unconsciousness. "'How dreadful! How dreadful!' the old lady was exclaiming. "'You must put the poor little thing in the carriage, and I'll drive to the nearest doctor's.' "'Better let me take her in a cab to a hospital, my lady,' advised the groom. "'It wasn't our fault. She ran under the horse's feet. Tomkins and me can both swear to that.' The arbitress of Joan's fate appeared to hesitate, and the child thought best to revive enough to open her eyes, which she knew to be large and soft as a fawn's, for one imploring glance. In the fall which had caused her to drop the boil baby, she had grazed her forehead against a lamp-post, and on the small white face there remained a stain of blood which was effective at this juncture. She started, put out her hand, and groped for the old lady's dress at which she caught as a drowning man is said to catch at a straw. "'On second thoughts, I will take her home, if she can tell me where she lives. She seems to be reviving,' said the lady. "'Where do you live, my poor little girl?' "'Ah, I don't live anywhere,' gasped Joan, white-lipped. "'I haven't any mother or home or anything. I wanted to die.' "'Oh, you poor little pitiful thing! What a sad story!' crooned the old lady. "'You shall go to my home, and stop till you get well, and I will buy you a doll and lots of nice toys.' The rapidly recovering Joan determined that, once in the old lady's house, she would stop long after she had got well, and that she would, sooner or later, have many things better than toys. But she smiled gratefully, faintly, looking like a broken flower. The groom was directed to place her on the seat in a reclining posture, and she was given the old lady's silk-covered air-cushion to rest her head upon. She really ached in every bone, but she was exaggerating her sufferings, saying to herself, "'It's come. I've walked right into the fairy story, and nothing shall make me walk out again. I've got nobody to look after me, so I'll have to look after myself and be my own mamma. I can't help it whether it's right or wrong. I don't know much about right and wrong anyhow, so I shan't bother. I've got to grow up a grand, rich lady. My chance has come, and I'd be silly not to take it. Having thus disposed of her conscience, such as her wretched life had made it, Joan proceeded to faint again, as picturesquely as possible. Her pretty little head, rippling over with thick golden-brown hair, fell on the grey silk shoulder and gave the kindly rather foolish old heart beneath a warm protecting thrill the child's features were lovely and her lashes very long and dark if she had been ugly or even plain in spite of her appealing ways lady thorndyke the widow of a rich city knight would probably have agreed to the groom's suggestion but joan did not overestimate her own charms and their power 
A quarter of a century ago, Lady Thorndyke had lost a little girl about the age of this pathetic waif, and she had had no other child. There was a nephew on the stock exchange, but Lady Thorndyke was interested in him merely because she thought it her duty, though he had been brought up to take it for granted that he would be her heir. In truth, the lonely woman had half unconsciously sighed all her life for romance and for love. She had never had much of either. And now, in this tragic child who clung to her, and would not be denied, there was promise of both. So Joan was born, in supreme spiritual triumph and slight bodily pain, to the big, old-fashioned Brighton house, where her new protectress spent the greater part of the year. She was put into a bed which smelled of lavender and felt like a soft, warm cloud. She went through the ordeal of being examined by a doctor, knowing that her whole future might depend upon his verdict. She lay sick and quivering with a thumping heart, lest he should say, "'This child is perfectly well, except for a bruise and a scratch or two. There's nothing to prevent her being sent home.' But in her anxiety Joan had worked herself into a fever. The doctor was a fat, comfortable man with children of his own, and the escaped drudge could have worshipped him when he announced that she was in a highly nervous state, and would be better for a few days' rest, good nursing and nourishing food. She had arnica and plasters externally, and internally beef tea. Then she told her story. Had it been necessary, Joan would have plunged into a sea of fiction, but she had enough dramatic sense to perceive that nothing could be more effective than the truth, dashed in with plenty of colour. Joan's memory was as vivid as her imagination. She was fired to eloquence by her own wrongs, and her word-sketch of the poor baby deserted by a beautiful, mysterious actress, her picturesque conjectures as to what that actress's noble husband, the harrowing portrait of her angelic young self as a lodging-house drudge, the final climax, painting the savage punishment in the street, and her resolve to seek refuge in death, one fabrication in the tale affected the secretly sentimental heart of the city knight's widow-like music. "'I would rather have been trampled to death under your horse's feet than go back,' sobbed the child. "'Don't be frightened and excite yourself, my poor pretty little dear,' Lady Thorndyke soothed her. "'No harm shall come to you. I promise that.' Joan's instinctive tact had been sharpened to diplomacy by the constant need for self-defence. She said no more. She only looked and her eyes were like those of a wounded deer which begs its life of the hunter. Lady Thorndyke began to turn over various schemes for Joan's advantage, but that same evening, which was Saturday, her nephew, George Gallon, arrived from town to spend Sunday with his aunt. She told him somewhat timidly about the lovely child she was sheltering, and the hard-mouthed, square-chinned young man threw cold water on her projects, he said that the girl was no doubt a designing little minx, who richly deserved what she had got from the charitable, if quick-tempered woman who gave her a home. He advised his aunt to be rid of the young viper as soon as possible, and meanwhile to leave the care of her entirely to the servants. His strong nature impressed itself upon Lady Thorndyke's weak one, as red-hot iron cauterizes tender flesh. She believed all he said while he was with her and conceived a distrust of Joan. But Gallon had an important deal on in the city for Monday, and was obliged to leave early, having extracted a half-promise from his aunt that the intruder should go forth that day, or at latest the next. He had not seen Joan Carthew, and therefore 
had not reckoned on her strength and fascination as forces powerful enough to fence with his influence. Joan felt the difference in her patroness's manner, as a swallow feels the coming of a storm. She knew that there had been a visitor, and she guessed what had happened. She grew cold with the chill of presentiment, but gathered herself together for a fight to the death. "'You look much better this morning, my dear,' began Lady Thorndyke nervously. "'You will perhaps be well enough to get up and be dressed by and by, to drive out with me, and choose yourself a doll, or anything you would like. You will be glad to hear that—' that my nephew and i called on mrs boyle yesterday and she is, is sorry if she was harsh in future you will not be living on her charity i shall give her a small yearly sum for her board and clothing you will be sent to school as you ought to have been long ago and really i don't see how she managed to avoid this duty but in any case you will be happy joan turned over on her face and the bed shuddered with her tearing sobs she was not really crying. The crisis was too tense for tears. "'Oh, don't, dear, don't,' pleaded Lady Thorndyke, feeling horribly guilty. "'I will see you sometimes, and—' "'See me sometimes,' echoed the child. "'You are the only person who has ever been kind to me. I can't live without you now. I won't try. Oh, it was cruel to bring me here and show me what happiness could be, just to drive me away again into the dark. But—' The distressed old lady had begun to stammer, when the child slipped out of bed and fell at her protectress's feet. "'Keep me with you,' she implored. "'I'll be your servant. I'll live in the kitchen. I'll eat what your dog eats. Only let me stay.' She wound her slim, childish arms around Lady Thorndyke's waist, her eyes streaming with tears at last. Her beautiful hair curled piteously over the grey silk lap. She was at that moment a great actress, for though she was honestly grateful— she neither wished nor intended to live in the kitchen and eat what the dog ate. She would be a child of the house, or she would be nothing. Her beauty, her despair, and her humility were irresistible. Lady Thorndyke forgot George Gallon, and clasped the child in her arms, crying in sympathy. "'If you care so much, dear, how can I let you go?' she whimpered. "'I care enough to die for you, or to die if I lose you,' Joan vowed. "'You shall not die.' "'And you shall not lose me!' exclaimed the old lady, remembering her nephew now and defying him. "'You shall stay and be my little girl!' Joan did stay. Before the week ended, and another visit from George Gallon was due, she had so entwined herself around Lady Thorndyke's heart that the rather cowardly old woman had courage to face her nephew with the news that she meant to keep the waif whom Providence had sent her. End of chapter 1 Read by Lynn Allison